thank you for coming to this talk um, on parasitic infections. Uh, my name is Charlie Mossler. I'm a pharmacist who specializes really in geriatrics. So here I am talking about leishmaniasis and all the other fun stuff. How does that happen? So interestingly enough, um, and, and probably my story is the same as many people in this room, uh, I, w I had the ability to be introduced to short-term medical mission trips um, as a college student when I was in pharmacy school for the first time. Uh, first time. I've only been in pharmacy school once. Um, but when I was in pharmacy school early on in, in my career as a pharmacy student. And so this stuff has just kind of stuck with me um, over the years. I, I've been able to, um, over the last 20 years already since I graduated, continue to do a lot of short-term medical mission trips. Um, our, our trips have kind of slowed down a little bit, as my wife have a very active 12 and 14-year-old at home right now, uh, and so we haven't been able to do as much again here recently, but hope, looking forward to getting back into that. Um, so again, I'm from Finley, Ohio area, which is in northwest Ohio. Very nice weather down here, although it's not too bad up there right now either. Uh, I think it was last year I woke up this morning and there was snow. Um, maybe it was Friday morning last year, but anyhow, very, very, very nice down here. Um, definitely want to acknowledge, if anyone came last year, heard a very, very similar talk um, from me, and I was asked to come back and do this again this year. But last year, I had the added benefit of having Dr. Rebecca Chancey, um, who is from the CDC, who works there. And actually, if you call the phone number at the end of this um, presentation to talk more about them, about some of these diseases, or you have a patient, especially a patient here in the United States with one of these things, there's a good chance you're going to hear a response from her. Um, she was unable to come this year, and so that's, that's unfortunate for you all because you're just stuck with me instead of the banter back and forth between the two of us. Um, but she definitely had a lot of hope and insight in putting this presentation together. Um, from the financial relationship, there's nothing to disclose. FDA, we're going to talk about some stuff off-label. Uh, a lot of these drugs, or some of these drugs we, we'll talk about today, um, have not been approved by the FDA. And so in, in some of the other ones, they've been approved in certain populations and not other populations. So again, there will definitely be some non-FDA approval list um, from, from me today. Um, objectives are there. Um, oh, I also meant to mention, if you want the, the, the handout from this, it should be available on the website. Um, so you should be able to download that um, and, and print that off if you would like once you get back home. Uh, so we're going to talk first about worms. This is probably of the four things we're going to talk about here today. The one you're most likely to see just in a patient here in the United States um, without maybe any travel overseas or anything like that. Having said that, obviously many of you know that a lot of these worm infections are much, much, much more prevalent outside of the U.S. than they are here. Um, but again, we're going to kind of go through some of these worms. And so looking at worms... Um, there's, there's four main types that we usually think about when we're talking about treating worms. Um, so we have our, our round worms, um, hook worms, tape worms, and then pin worms. Uh, pin worms are the ones that um, I call the original IBS, the itchy butt syndrome. I'm allowed to say that here. Um, and so that one is, is, again, pretty prominent here in the United States, especially in in, in the nursery school age kids and preschool age kids, and you see them doing this, you're like, uh-oh, um, wonder what that is or what that could be. Um, and so, again, roundworms, a lot of these are transmitted the, the oral fecal route or by eating dirt. Uh, again, you see kids out playing in sand or in dirt in the, in the garden or not the garden, um, and they're potentially transmitting a lot of these things into their GI tract. Estimated effect up to 1 billion people in the world. You know, that's somewhat a made-up number because nobody really knows how many people have that. But that's what all the estimations have. And so that's roughly one out of every seven to eight people um, in the world has some sort of worm infection with roundworms. Um, hookworms, um, a lot less prevalent, roughly about half is likely. Could you be infected with both types? Absolutely. Could you be infected with all four of these? Probably so. Um, but again, estimated roughly 500 to 750 million people around the world. Um, symptoms from this one, uh, many people have them and they don't know they have them. And, and up to severe anemia is what you can see with hookworms. Um, tapeworms, a lot of times we hear about that, um, maybe here in the United States even, by eating undercooked meat. Um, tapeworms, a lot of times, can be obtained through that route. Uh, so again, just eating undercooked meat is what you can, where you can obtain those. Um, seizures can be very, very troublesome with this disease and so or with this infection of worms. 
And, and that is certainly one of the, the most severe um, symptoms that patients can have from a worm infection. And then again, pinworms. Usually, fortunately, pinworms are pretty mild. The bad thing about pinworms is they're often hard to get rid of. Um, compared to even some of the other worms, you can treat them pretty easily and they go away. Pinworms have very resilient eggs. And so those eggs get, you know, again, preschool age kids, they're running all over the carpet. Those eggs get in the carpet, into the furniture, and they can live in that environment for weeks. And so very easy to get reinfected with those pinworms. And again, you'll see that with the treatments. A lot of the treatments for pinworms will talk about repeating. Um, and so that is, is predominantly why we do that. Um, so the treatment of worms, again, for the most part, um, many patients may not need treatment because they don't even know they have it. And so that becomes an issue. They don't even know if they have worms, and so they're not going to seek out treatment because they don't know that that is an issue. Um, so supportive care definitely is something that you can help your patients out with. And supportive care might be giving additional supplements to that patient who is experiencing anemia from a worm infection. Um, working with some potential GI meds. Again, generally it's going to be better to get to the heart of the matter, right, and try to treat the worm, um, but many patients will also need some supportive care as well. Most commonly used medications that we see around the world um, for worms are listed there. Uh, those are all pretty large, I shouldn't say largely available. If you walk into your local CVS here in the United States, they may not have those um, in stock, but they can get those um, pretty easily if needed. Uh, so we're going to kind of go through these one by one. We'll talk about each of the drugs as we, as we go, and this will kind of be the, the theme for what we're going to do for the, the remainder of um, the discussions today. Um, albendazole. Um, my actual first time I came across albendazole was treating worm infections in goats. Um, I didn't know at the time, this is before pharmacy school, that it was also could be used in humans. And so a lot of these, especially the worm medications, you can see used um, in, in different populations, whether human or animal. And so albendazole is definitely one of those. Uh, the, the, the worms with albendazole, roundworm, hookworm, um, and even pinworm, the dosing is pretty simple. 400 milligrams for one dose um, for an adult patient. And you see there for a pediatric patient, it's still the same dose. Um, this drug is not absorbed real well systemically. It stays localized for the most part in the GI tract. And so that's why uh, a lot of these patients, um, they'll just, it's the same dose for both pediatrics. You don't have to worry about side effects as much. Um, again, from the pinworm perspective, you see repeat in two weeks. That is, again, you kill off all the worms from the first dose that are in that patient right now, but there's probably still worm eggs in the house, um, in the nursery school, wherever. Those are very, very different difficult to eliminate entirely, and so those can still be there, and that's why we generally like to repeat um, that in two weeks. Side effects for the most part, GI. Um, some nausea, some not really much vomiting, it's, it's potential. Um, but diarrhea you might see as well uh, with this medication. Again, not real well absorbed systemically, so that's why we don't see much from a systemic perspective. Maybe a little bit of a headache, um, but again, you see that with most any drug that we give to a patient for any disease. Um, pregnancy and lactation. Um, pregnancy, it's recommended to not use it, um, albendazole. Lactation, uh, probably okay, but some will probably, not probably, some will be transmitted to the baby. Um, and so, again, it's probably okay. Just use caution. Uh, availability, albendazole, U.S. and worldwide, any point in time. Albendazole, especially here in the U.S., and I imagine around the world as well, over the last probably 10 years or so, um, this drug has at times been difficult to obtain, um, even here in the United States. And so there are availability issues sometimes with some of these drugs. Uh, Mubendazole, you can tell from the name, and I'm not going to geek out and put the structures up here for you, but very, very similar drugs um, from the perspective of albendazole and mubendazole. And you can see that even the, the dosing, though, is, is a little bit different um, in that this drug usually requires twice a day uh, dosing for three days. Um, so still not a long period of time, but still not as easy as taking a drug once and being done with it. And so you do have to encourage your patients to try to um, be consistent about that. Um, roundworm, hookworm, tapeworm, you see there may repeat in two weeks, or I'm sorry, in three weeks. Um, doesn't always need to be done. kind of depends on the clinical situation, um, what's going on. This drug sometimes is not quite as effective about eliminating very big infections as albendazole is. 
Um, pediatric dosing, again, see very, very similar dosing. In fact, quite the same. Uh, for pediatrics, again, just due to the nature, we don't see a lot of systemic side effects because this drug is not absorbed systemically. So not worry about kids essentially getting too much into their systems. Side effects, the same. Um, pregnancy, lactation, similar but a little bit different. Here we see pregnancy, not recommended first or second trimester. Third trimester is probably okay. Uh, but again, risk versus benefit always come into that discussion. And then mebendazole is pretty easy to find um, here in the United States and around the world. Again, this drug uh, you'll see in livestock. So you can pick up at your local tractor supply store as well as, as other places by prescription. And so um, availability is, is not usually, it has not usually been as big an issue with mebendazole as sometimes with albendazole. Ivermectin. Um, so this one is the first one we talk about today that has a weight-based dose. And so this is where you want to get the, the weight of the patient as, as, good of a, as good an observation as you can. Um, and the pediatric dose and the adult dose are relatively similar, maybe a little bit lower for the um, roundworm dosing in pediatric patient, which I forgot to mention. This one is one really only recommended for roundworms. It has been used in other worms, um, but a lot of times the other worms usually will develop resistance to this one pretty easily. And so that's why roundworm is the only one that's kind of listed up here. Um, side effects, again, for the most part, fairly benign is what you're going to see for, for most patients. Occasionally you will get a patient who will get a little bit of a rash and itching. Not really an allergic reaction like a lot of times we think about with penicillins and some of the other antibiotics or other medication. Not really an allergic reaction sort of reaction. In other words, not really going to be a life-threatening. It has the potential to be a life-threatening anaphylaxis. Um, pregnancy, lactation, again, not recommended. Availability, again, pretty easy. This is pretty uh, easy to obtain um, wherever you might be in the world. Um, cost does come into play, I forgot to mention, with all of these drugs. Just because they're available um, in Brazil or Uganda, wherever you are, doesn't mean that the patient can necessarily afford it. We'll definitely see that a lot more with some of the drugs later on, though. Um, pyrantal pomoate. Hookworm, pinworm are the two that it seems to be most effective for. So if you suspect or you're able to confirm one of those two infections, this is the, one of the drugs that will do pretty well for those. Um, many patients are just going to get one gram per day. So this one does kind of have a maximum dose depending on the size of the patient. This, again, is a weight-based dosing, um, but a max of one gram per day. Pinworms, again, you do see that repeat dosing. So, uh, again, that's pretty ubiquitous for pinworms. Side effects, similar to albendazole and mebendazole. For the most part, some nausea, maybe some diarrhea. Um, some patients, 5% or less, might complain of a headache. Um, another thing I forgot to mention, um, once a day for three days. So a little bit easier to take than some, not as easy as the, al as the albendazole, though. Pregnancy, lactation, uh, this one does seem to be pretty safe for either population. And availability, fairly easy to obtain this one. Um, Proziquantil, probably the one that, that maybe is least familiar out of these medications. I have not really seen this one used myself a whole lot, um, but it is an option, and you see it is an option for tapeworm, which is probably one of the reasons I haven't really seen it. Probably tapeworm is the one that I, I have not seen as much as some of the others um, in various locations I've been. This is a weight-based dose. Um, the weight-based dose is kind of based, you see a range there, 5 to 25 milligrams, um, kind of based on the clinical presentation of the patient's. Not as severe, lower dose. More severe, um, higher dose. For the most part, it seems like most clinicians kind of go for about 10 to 15 milligrams um, per dose from, or per kilogram for most patients. Uh, but again, this one can have a range. Um, side effects, um, GI. Headache is something that can be concerning. Uh, again, remember some of the, the situations that tapeworms may present as in some of these patients. And so headache... Um, is, is one of the, the potential things that can be there from the, the destruction of the worm. Pregnancy, okay. Not really known for sure. Again, kind of surprising to me. A lot of these drugs have been around for a long time. These worm drugs, none of them are new. Um, they all predate me by a number of years. And so um, it's always interesting to me that we don't know for sure, but probably okay. Um, so we kind of have to go with our best judgment. And then Proziquantil, again, pretty easy to obtain um, no matter where you might be uh, located at. One of the things I always like doing with these presentations is where are we going, right? What does the future hold? Again, I said these drugs, 
they've been around for a long time. Nothing is new there, which is unfortunate, right? Um, and we do see resistance in some areas of the world to some of these medications. One of the reasons being that they're also used in livestock, right? Well, these, some of these worms can be the same worms that infect human. And so if livestock are being overtreated with some of these dewormers, then you may develop resistance in that area as well for in humans. So again, um, always interesting to see where are we going. And, and one of the things that, that was unique to me when I first read about this, I don't remember how long ago, that we can develop worms or, or vaccines against worms. And so um, we usually think about vaccines for viruses and maybe some bacteria. Um, but again, we're trying, they've been trying to develop vaccines for some of these, especially hookworms and tapeworms. Um, so that's cool. The bad news is they've been working on this for a long time, and they still have not been successful. Um, and so does that mean they won't be successful? Obviously, that doesn't mean that at all, but it's just kind of, I guess, discouraging, unfortunately, um, in that this is not a new or novel concept that they're going through. Um, it is something they've been looking at for a long period of time and, and just, unfortunately, have not been able to, to reach that goal yet. The other thing I kind of find interesting about worms is sometimes, and it's growing in popularity, we use worms to treat diseases. So we will purposefully infect patients with worms to treat diseases. Uh, the big one that I've seen the, the most is Crohn's disease. Um, one of the things we talk about with Crohn's disease um, with my pharmacy students is one of the theories behind why we see it increasing is that we have too clean of a diet, that we're not being exposed to enough bad things. And so our our Immune systems, they don't have anything to attack, right? Living in a clean environment here in the United States, there's nothing to attack, so it starts attacking self. Very, very cool that we can infect people with whipworms, which is not something we talked about, but with whipworms, and those patients who have Crohn's disease, and to a certain extent even ulcerative colitis, their symptoms will go down, and they've been able to stop some pretty potent medications by just, just taking worm eggs. Now, I don't get... Yep, I, I don't have Crohn's disease, so it's easy for me to think, no, I, there's no way in the world I would ever do that. Um, my, I, I know people who do have Crohn's disease, and so they're like, I would gladly swallow eggs once a month and maybe see them in the toilet um, if it meant that I felt better. And so there you go. Um, so inflammatory disease, um, even some endocrine diseases, like diabetes. They're trying this out for type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Does infecting people on purpose with worms in those who are maybe more likely to develop, especially type 2 diabetes, decrease the chance that it will ever get there? Again, very novel, very unique. Um, if it's, it sounds interesting, I definitely encourage you to, to do some Google searches on that, and it will keep you up at night. Um, so quick little question. Uh, which type of worm is Proziquantel able to treat? A, I think I heard, right? So Proziquantel, again, um, usually is the one that will go to for tapeworm. Again, probably one of those from that list that you have not run across as much as the others. Um, so we usually see that much more so with tapeworm. All right, switching gears to a different parasitic disease, leishmaniasis. Uh, something that we don't see here in the United States unless somebody has been overseas. With some exceptions, there have been some cases, uh, especially in the Midwest, where some patients have gotten it. Um, very, very rare, though, that you would see this without travel. So where do we see leishmaniasis for the most part? Um, it might be hard to see some of those colors from where you're sitting. Um, but a lot of times we think of this much more so as being a South America um, and definitely some in Africa, and then the Middle East. Um, Leishmaniasis, first time I kind of remember hearing about it, uh, were in soldiers in the Middle East who were getting it, when we, when we still have many U.S. soldiers there, um, but were being treated by the Department of Defense and that environment for, for Leishmaniasis. Um, so Leishmaniasis is, again, not something we typically see here in the United States, um, caused by a protozoa. Protozoa, when you think of that, I always think of malaria. Malaria, again, is one of the... Is, is definitely caused by protozoa, very, very common around the world. Um, this one is not certainly as common as malaria, only about 12 million people. Now, only about, but that's still a pretty big number, right? Um, so 12 million people. And this is transmitted by the bite of a sandfly. So again, like, like malaria having that mosquito vector, this one has a sandfly vector, uh, which is, again, is pretty common um, for different protozoas to be, uh, to, to be obtained through some sort of insect vector.
Um, symptoms can range from maybe nothing. Some patients will get bit by an infected sandfly, uh, and they won't have any symptoms. They'll be fine. They might have like a little pimple-looking thing, and it goes away. Others will develop more of a severe cutaneous um, disease and a very bad sore-looking thing. It just looks awful. Um, which can be in some patients painful, and other patients that it's again, if you Google some pictures of this, you'd think, how is that not painful? Where some patients will say it actually doesn't hurt. It looks awful, um, but it doesn't hurt too much. Up to a very visceral disease, where you can have your spleen infected, bone marrow infected, uh, which can be very, very severe and, and maybe sometimes even more difficult to treat. And so again, um, there you see the cutaneous. Um, down to visceral, you can also have diffuse cutaneous and mucocutaneous, which we don't see probably as much. Um, but those are just kind of different types of cutaneous. A lot of times they're cutaneous. You're just going to get uh, where that sandfly bit the patient, a, a pretty bad-looking sore, and that's it. Others um, will, for whatever reason, if it's probably something immunologic in that individual, um, will get diffuse cutaneous where they have sores all over the place. It doesn't mean they got bits all over the place, um, but for whatever reason, that protozoa is able to travel in that patient um, and, and cause areas um, or cause more infection, um, sore areas throughout the body. Um, mucocutaneous um, is exactly what it sounds like. You have infections in the mucus area, so the area of the nose, mouth, throat, um, which can be a lot more problematic for patients if it inhibits their ability to eat, to drink. Um, if they get sores in their mouth, that can be painful there. And then again, visceral, which is, uh, can be fatal if untreated. It gets into liver, spleen, bone marrow, like I mentioned earlier. Um, prevention is difficult, right? I mean, we always talk about here in the United States, uh, I'm not going to get bit by any mosquitoes this year, and you go out and watch one baseball game of your kids or whatever, and you come home just covered in bites, right? Um, so it's a lot more difficult to prevent some of these, uh, some of these infections that are caused by um, insect vectors than what we like to think. Um, vaccines and development, we'll talk a little bit more about that later on as well. Um, treatments. It depends. Um, there's not kind of a one-size-fits-all treatment for these patients. And you'll see these drugs, um, if you haven't been outside the United States, probably or working in parasitic diseases, um, potentially the only drug up here that you've heard of before is the amphotericin B. And if you work in a hospital here in the U.S., when you hear amphotericin B, those patients usually hate that drug, right? It causes lots of side effects. It looks like orange juice flowing into the patient, um, but they don't like how it makes them feel. And then you have the antimonial compounds um, and then a couple others as well um, that we'll get through here. Resistance is becoming an issue uh, with these drugs. We always talk about resistance um, with any of these protozoal. Again, malaria, we see in, in resistance to many of the, the traditional antimalarials now. And we see resistance developing to some of these medications as well. As well. <clears throat> leash, if you see leash here in the uh, patient in the United States, um, and, and, again, most clinicians who work here in the U.S. are not going to have a clue or not going to be able to identify it when it does show up until they take a sample, send it off to lab, and maybe the lab's able to identify the protozoal there. Um, but always contact the CDC um, if you have questions because this can be a difficult disease to treat. Again, we're just not used to seeing this. Um, so liposomal amphotericin B is, is kind of becoming... Um, one of the, the drugs that we like the most for this, especially if it develops into a visceral disease, um, cutaneous, mucocutaneous, you can use this one as well. Um, but again, this is a drug patients usually don't like, and you see that under side effects. I've wrote lots. Um, basically, if you have an organ system, it's going to cause a side effect in that organ system. Um, so you see cardio, CNS, dermatologic, endocrine, on and on and on. Um, this is a, the traditional dirty drug when we think about dirty drugs and causing side effects. Um, but again, dosing there, um, this is IV, and so this is not something that patients can just do at home. It's not an oral medication, nor, nor there's an oral option for them. Um, so it's a, a, an infusion that the patients usually are going to get on days one to five, as you see listed there for cutaneous, um, or on days one to seven. And so you kind of usually go up to that total dose of 18 to 21 milligrams per kilogram. Um, going over that dose hasn't shown to do any more effective job about getting rid of the infection. It just does a much better job about ensuring that patient feels miserable from the side effects they get. <laughs> uh, pediatric patients, again, is a weight-based dose. So they're going to get a, usually a much smaller dose than your adult patient. So, again, weight-based for them. 
But overall, very, very similar um, from a dosing perspective. Pregnancy, as dirty as this drug is, it always surprises me, and I always look this up anytime before I talk about amphotericin. This is still considered safe for pregnancy. Um, we, we do have good data for this one, um, so probably okay. And when you see the other drugs for leishmaniasis, this kind of becomes a preferred agent um, for pregnant women. Uh, lactation unknown, uh, risk versus benefit. So will the baby get some of this drug into their system? Yes. But again, this is a drug that we can use safely in kids. Um, risk versus benefit, though, it may cause some side effects. Usually the extent or the amount that the patient gets, the baby gets, is not enough to cause side effects when it gets transferred that way. So usually um, it's okay, considered to be okay, but largely officially unknown. Amphotericin B, again, is, is available easily. You can walk to, into any hospital, and they will have it in stock, ready to go, um, especially here in the United States. Outside the U.S., again, becomes very hit or miss because this is unfortunately not an inexpensive medication. Um, so availability outside the world is technically there, um, but they may not necessarily always have it in stock. All right, so the first antimonial compound that we'll talk about there, um, this is dose. You see that SBV, that just essentially means dosing based on the antimonial content of this drug. And so um, this is a salt form, same sibagglucanate. I'm going to come back to this, but just to kind of show you, meglumane antimonate is also an antimonial drug. And so usually in, in a certain area of the world, you're going to have one of these two agents available. You don't always have both of them. So these, this is both on antimonial com, uh, content of that medication, and again, in a weight-based fashion. Compared to amphotericin, the patient's going to be on this usually a lot longer. You see there for 20 or 28 days. Um, conversely, unlike amphotericin, the patient may get this IM. Um, and so, again, you see that adult and pediatric dosing. Um, side effects, not probably as severe as... For, for most patients, is amphotericin. But the side effects it can cause are nothing to laugh at, right? And so you see this, the, the pain, the arthralgia, that's the most common thing that patients will complain about. They just ache all over when they're getting this medication. Usually the ache can be relieved by some over-the-counter pain medications, um, but they kind of have that flu-like achiness going on. Um, and then QT prolongation is probably the most severe, uh, which, again, a lot of the world, you're not able to measure what their QT rate actually is to know if they're developing that. Uh, unfortunately, that is a pretty rare, um, uh, pretty rare side effect, and, and usually you need to be on multiple QT prolonging agents for that to really be a concern. Um, the antimony in this compound or in this drug makes it not recommended for pregnancy or lactation. Officially, it's unknown, hasn't really been studied um, in humans, um, but in animal models, it did cause um, birth defects. Um, availability. Uh, this is actually one that is probably easier to get in a lot of the world that is not the United States. Um, it used to be available here in the United States. Pentastam was the brand name. Um, and this is a drug that the CDC would send to you if you did need it here in the United States. And so, um, however, it's no longer being manufactured. Uh, but again, you can maybe find this drug outside of the U.S. a lot easier than you can here. And then again, it's cousin, meglumine antimonate. Uh, very, very similar overall. Um, side effects, you see it's basically a copy and paste. Pregnancy lactation is basically a copy and paste. Kind of one of these two drugs is what you want to use if the patient qualifies for it. Um, availability. This one you can actually um, get in the United States, but you have to fill out an investigation new drug application from the FDA um, and then take that to Sanofi to get that figured out. And so there's bureaucracy and paperwork involved, which means it's probably not going to get to you in a, or to the patient um, here in the United States necessarily in a very timely manner. Um, again, a lot of the world, um, especially the French-speaking areas of the world, um, or French, former French colonies, um, this drug is manufactured in France, and they do a very nice job about shipping it out to their former colonies. So if you're in a lot of the Franco um, ports of the world, you might be able to find this one pretty easily, um, which is, is pretty cool for patients living there, if they need it. Hopefully they don't need it. That's not cool that you need this drug. Uh, Miltefacine. Um, is another medication that we'll see here um, used for different types of leishmaniasis. So this is the first one we kind of talk about the different subspecies 
of leishmaniasis. And so this one is not specifically going to work in just any leash. You have to know for sure what we got going on. Um, dosing, again, is, is unfortunate in that this is a 28-day dose. And this one they actually have to take two or three times a day. Um, side effects. Oh, I forgot to mention, this one actually is FDA-approved, and so a lot of these leash drugs are not officially FDA-approved, but this one actually is. Um, was just a few years ago that it actually obtained approval. Um, side effects, for the most part, with the patients taking it, they're fine while they're taking it. Um, it can cause potential infertility, though, in patients down the road. So this one, especially in animal models, has been shown to do that. Um, some humans have experienced that. Um, so it is something that you wanted to potentially discuss um, with your patient um, if that would be a concern for them. Pregnancy, this is definitely a no. Um, lactation is not officially recommended at all. Um, and then availability. Uh, Profunda um, is the manufacturer actually makes this drug. The brand name is Impavito there. And then you see the cost. Um, so I could put that up under the side effects, $16,000 per bottle, um, is a side effect of this drug. That's here in the United States. Um, fortunately, uh, I was able to find, I don't know how accurate this pricing is. You always have to wonder. Um, in India, it seemed like this drug could be obtained for roughly the U.S. equivalent of about $100 to $160. Not nothing, right? That's still a lot of money in a lot of the world, but a lot less than $16,000. Um, EU is right around, if you were in, in a EU, uh, European Union country, um, this drug is roughly fifteen dollars to $16,000, so very, very expensive. Um, manufacturer's website talks about, well, we can get your cost down under, most patients pay less than $100. I have no idea if that's true or not. This is not one I've ever had to submit to any of patient's insurance. Um, and so I don't, I, I can't imagine, again, the paperwork you'd have to fill out to get prior authorization here in the United States to get that down to less than $100 for the patient. And then promomycin. This one's really only effective for cutaneous leishmaniasis. And you see there, this is compounded into an ointment or a cream. Um, this was compounded usually into an ointment or cream with another agent, MBCLs, methylbenzothonium chloride. Um, that actually, that sounds a lot like benzoclonium chloride, which a lot of us know as a preservative that's in many um, different IV medications that is, acts as a preservative there. Um, it also has some preservative characteristics, but that's not why it's actually in this ointment. Um, that benzothonium chloride, or methabenzothonium chloride, actually prevents um, this protozoa from adhering to the skin. And so it, if it can't adhere to the skin, it can't infect the skin. It can't cause damage in the skin. Um, so that's kind of cool. And then, then again, you have the active, the real active part of the drug, promomycin. Um, this also comes in a compound with genomycin cream. And so genomycin Yes, the, the antibiotic that you've heard of before. A little bit less clear as to why that is added into this medication. It just seems to work, and so it's continued to be used. Um, probably is it potentially causing or preventing some infection in the surrounding tissue? Probably what actually is going on there. Um, so, again, this one is not available in the United States commercially. You'd have to take it to a compounding pharmacy. They'd have to order it and make it into that. Some parts of the world it is available um, commercially as an ointment or cream with one of those two other agents. Um, side effects, um, it, again, generally fine. Um, pregnancy, lactation, again, a topical ointment, probably fine. Uh, topical cream, probably fine. Um, the data for pregnancy and lactation comes from the, the intramuscular formulation, which we don't see used a whole lot for leishmaniasis um, anymore. And so that's why officially if you look it up, um, it's going to say unknown, but that is, is going back to data on the old intramuscular formulation. So where are we going with leash? Again, like I mentioned earlier, um, looking very closely at uh, vaccines. Um, keep in mind protozoa. We've been looking at protozoa vaccines for malaria uh, for a long, long time. Some now seem to be kind of there. Will we get there with leash? Hopefully. Um, phase one studies is where we're kind of at right now. Um, the Drugs for ne Neglected Disease Initiative um, picked up on leash several years ago, quite a while ago now. And so this is one of those neglected tropical diseases that fortunately now is getting a lot more funding going to it. Um, a lot of organizations 
IDSA, World Health Organization, Pan American Health Organization, um, and I'm blanking on ASTMH right now what that stands for, but another tropical uh, medicine health initiative, um, updating guidelines. So this stuff, if you come back, I'm doing the same presentation next year, some of this may change. Right now it's kind of muddy, um, honestly, as to which drug you use first in some of these patients. As we're getting more data, um, hopefully that will become clear with some of the additional guideline updates. All right, so which one of these is safe to use in pregnancy for a leash patient? None of them. Which one is? Amphotericin B, right. So amphotericin B would probably be the rate we'd want to go, route we'd want to go if we had that. All right, Chagas disease. Um, so, so this is one that um, you might see here in the United States. Uh, you see here, I think it's in this slide, there's estimated to be 300,000 people in the United States who are infected with this, um, which is a lot less than around the world, 8 to 10 million people around the world. Um, but there's parts, um, there have been studies done in North Carolina and studies done in Southern California, uh, where a lot of the immigrant populations of, from, from Central and South America um, might be located at. And so those populations where we, a lot of times we see that, and you see a high, high percentage um, in some of these patients who have immigrated here from, from um, Central and South America. Um, so transmitted by the tratamine bug, this again is another protozoa, so the Trypanosoma cruzi. Um, again, estimated 300,000 people here in the United States. Um, this is an infection that many people, when they first get it, they don't know they have it. They get a mild fever, and that might be it. Or you might get what this, this patient looks to have um, going on with the eye. It's called a shagoma, um, or Chagas disease, and you get like this little puffy thing. Um, if that wasn't right above her eye, would she have noticed that, or would, she, you know, would it be concerning? Um, maybe not. Um, but the tritamine bug likes to go for eyes, likes to go for, for a lot of those. And so that's why a lot of times you'll see that. So anytime you see that patient with that, that um, shagoma going on around their eye, um, this should certainly be something that you think about. Uh, especially, again, if you're in one of these areas of the world where we see this, which we'll see in the, the next slide. I think there's a map there. Um, why is this then in the problem if many patients don't even know they have it? Well, a lot of times the initial infection, it is not a problem. It's then years to decades down the road where it starts causing heart problems a lot of times. And so you see arrhythmias, you can see heart failure. Uh, again, the, that study done in Southern California, uh, and I don't remember the exact statistics, but a good percentage of patients who were seen in one clinic who were showing up for heart failure, they actually did studies on that patient, and they found out the heart failure is actually probably being caused by a previous infection with Chagas disease. And then you can also have esophageal and colonial dilation as well, um, and so that can be problematic for those patients if it shows up there. Uh, again, prevention is difficult. It's easy for me to stand up here and say, just eliminate the triatamine bug. But again, bugs can be very difficult to eliminate. Why? Well, this bug likes to hide. Um, it comes out at night, so during the day when everybody's awake, you don't see it. Um, and it likes to hide in the thatched roof or in the, the wall, the cracks in the wall, or behind the, the picture, the, the frame hanging up on the wall. Um, these bugs can be very, very difficult to eliminate because, again, they come out at night. That's when they feed in these patients. Um, that's when they're, they're um, transmitting the trypanosome cruzi to them. So, again, you see the endemic area in the red um, from Mexico down to the very tip of South America. Uh, but you see it's present in a lot of the other areas of the world. And so Australia, um, parts of Western Europe as well, and, and then... Um, so, so you can definitely see this, again, throughout a lot of the world populations where you've had patients um, who have traveled from the endemic areas. Again, treatment for all patients with Chagas disease should be considered because not necessarily the symptoms they're having now, but to prevent symptoms from occurring later on, which can be a lot more troublesome. Um, if they develop the cardiac disease, if they develop atrial fibrillation secondary to having Chagas disease 20 years ago, you treat that AFib exactly the way you would as any other patient with AFib. You don't treat it different at that point in time. If they develop heart failure, again, you follow the heart failure guidelines. Um, you don't treat it any different just because it was caused by Chagas disease. At that point in time, it's kind of too late to go back and actually treat the Chagas disease. The damage has already been done. Um, cure rate is pretty good, um, honestly, for 
for patients if you get them treated early enough. The longer time has been since the, the initial infection, the more difficult this one is going to be to treat. Um, problem with these drugs, side effects. Um, the side effects can be very troublesome to the patient, and many times they won't finish their dose. And if they don't finish their dose, then that means that potentially some of that shagas, some of that um, protozoa, is still going to be in their body and causing problems. <clears throat> All right, so benzonidazole is the first drug. This was actually approved by the United States or by the FDA, um, I forget, probably five or so years ago, I would guess, but only approved for kids 2 to 12. Um, can you use it off-label? Absolutely. Again, this is one of those off-label drugs I mentioned earlier on. Um, so you will see this used here in the United States in patients of, of varying ages. The, the dosing is a little bit interesting to me. Why 5 to 7 for adults, milligrams per kilogram, and 5 to 8 um, I, I don't know. I, from what I could tell, it just kind of seemed to be the studies that were done. Um, and, and so the studies in adults only looked at 5 to 7 milligrams, and the studies in kids looked at 5 to 8 milligrams. Um, so, again, kind of weird to me, but, but that's just how it is. And then you see there, 60 days. That's how long a patient needs to tolerate these side effects. And, again, these, this is one of those drugs that patients are likely to get side effects. Um, that insomnia, the abdominal pain, are what a lot of patients will complain about. And so they will stop taking their drugs one week, two weeks in, whatever, uh, and they won't continue for the full 60 days. And by not continuing for the full 60 days, um, this, is a, this is a protozoa that is not easy to eradicate in that short time. That's why you have to take it for two months. And so um, maybe it got knocked down, but it's going to get back up again. Is that a song or something? Um, <laughs> Uh, additional side effects, weight loss. Again, a lot of times that's due to the GI complaints associated with this drug. Pregnancy lactation, not recommended. Uh, availability, this is available here in the United States. It's also available um, around the world now. Um, unfortunately, this drug, um, it, the number of manufacturers across the world are very, very small. Uh, and so I know in 2020, a lot of stuff going on in 2020, but they couldn't get enough of the, the drug. Um, to manufacture this, and so there's a big shortage of it. Um, right now, from what I can tell, there doesn't seem to be a shortage, at least here in the United States, um, but this is one of those drugs just due to the number of suppliers being very small around the world that it doesn't seem to be very effective, or it might be hard to get at certain times. Um, Nifertamox is, is another drug that we see here. Um, the side effects for this drug usually tend to be a little bit worse, and so Patients will not tolerate this one very well either for most, for most individuals, as well as seeing they have to take it three times a day at least. Uh, and so three times a day for 60 days turns into problematic. Again, side effects are relatively similar. If I were to put a chart in here, maybe I should have, with the statistics of the percentages of how often you would see these show up a lot more frequently um, than even what we saw at benzonidazole. Uh, again, this one's available here in the United States, available um, also around the world. Similar to um, benzonidazole, this one has also had very supply chain issues with it um, in the past five to ten years. And so it's hit or miss um, whether or not it will actually be available. All right, Chagas disease. Where are we going? Um, many more drugs being looked at for this disease. Uh, will they get there? Will they be um, FDA, World Health Organization, whomever approved? Maybe. Um, we just right now don't really know. There is one from Vanderbilt that does seem to be pretty promising. Um, no observable side effects. That always sounds good, but to me as the pharmacist is like, really? Um, and so sounds really good, especially comparison, even if it's just half the side effects of benzonidazole. You know, that is certainly a step in the right direction. Um, so we'll see where that ends up going. Chagas disease. Why should all patients with Chagas disease be treated? Is it so that it doesn't get into the water supply? Okay, good. Very good. Pre B, prevent long-term complications. That's, again, the problem with Chagas disease is not so much how the patient shows up initially, but what they show up with later on. The cousin, if you will, of... Um, American Chagas disease, or American trypanosomiasis, um, human African trypanosomiasis, the so-called sleeping sickness, right? Um, and so, again, caused by uh, protozoa species, trypanosoma brucei is the official um, 
genus of these or genus of these um, transmitted by another bug, right? The tsetse fly, or I've heard this pronounced very many ways, and I don't know who was right anymore. Um, but Gambiense and Rodensiense are the two um, subspecies that are usually end up being the, the most problematic. Um, again, West and Central Africa tends to be more Gambiense, and then Rodes, Rodes, I can't talk today. Rodesiense um, tends to be more in Eastern and Southern Africa. Um, good thing about this one is this does seem to be going down in prevalence, um, and some would argue maybe even shouldn't be a talk in, in or part of one of the top four. Uh, not that this was supposed to be a top four, but from a parasitic disease perspective, um, symptoms kind of boil down into first stage and second stage. The first stage, again, usually shows up as some sort of lesion that is occurring at the site of the bite. Um, and then from there, it can progress. And if it gets into that second stage, that's where you get into the sleepiness um, effects of that. Again, prevention. Just don't get bit by that fly, right? Um, so the treatment herein it tends to be a little bit more difficult than some of the other drugs. You see first-line treatments, that's usually what we want to um, use, obviously, first if, when possible for our patients. Um, but all that really depends first on really identifying what type of, of species of protozoa this actually was, uh, which, again, is a lot easier said than done in some parts of the world. Sometimes you have to go on geographic location, right? We saw that largely these are separated geographically in Asia, but what do you do when the country is right in the middle? Is it really central to central south? Uh, but, again, a lot of times you can find data to help back up your decision if you're not able to officially figure out which one it was. The alternative treatments, again, are there if the patient isn't responding well to the first dose or the first-line treatment or if, if you can't obtain the first-line treatment. Uh, this is an algorithm I just put in here, um, not for you all to memorize, but just to, to kind of have an idea. This is difficult, and so this is one where it's, it's probably uh, – Make sure you're not just guessing, not that any of you would, but, you know, always try to have a good resource to, to back you up, um, especially when you're dealing with sleeping sickness, because getting the right drug for that right protozoa is really going to help that patient out. Um, if it's the wrong drug because you guessed wrong, then, then that may not lead to a good outcome for that patient. Dosing, again, is showing up very, very small on these screens. Um, but this is nice in that fexnitazole is actually an oral drug. Um, so the patients don't have to be admitted. But check this out. One of the things I forgot to mention here, I'm going uh -oh, to get out of the yellow tape and get in trouble. Um, fexnitazole, if a patient you think is not going to be able to take all their medication, then, then you probably want to hospitalize them. Again, is that really feasible in a lot of the world or not? Probably not, um, but that's what's officially recommended by the World Health Organization if you have concerns um, regarding adherence or the patient being able to actually take their medication. So, again, oral meds, so that's a, a good thing for this disease. Um, so you have a loading dose over the first four days, and then you have a lower, slightly lower maintenance dose um, for the next up to 10 days or 5 to 10 days, days 5 to 10. Um, and so that's how this drug works. Um, Fexnitazole is, again, very, very much used for these patients who have Gabbiense um, infection, if you're able to identify that. Um, pregnancy is where it gets even trickier. Um, usually recommend to not give it in the, first trans into the, in the first trimester. Give it trimesters two and three. Um, why is that? Well, this can be transmitted to the baby on death or on, on, on birth and can again cause death. Um, this can also this is a disease that also is very troublesome to um, pregnant women around the time of of birth of that baby, and so this can be deadly to that patient, um, the mom as well. Um, lactation officially unknown, but in the when the World Health Organization updated their 2019 guidelines, it said basically risk out. I'm sorry, benefits outweigh the risks. And so they recommend giving this one to, um, pregnant, or to women who are breastfeeding. This one is actually available pretty much um, in areas where you might see it. It's actually available in the United States through drug company Sanofi um, and available um, in Africa where we see this from the World Health Organization. Pentamidine 
Again, it's going to be a weight-based dose, but this one is not oral. The patient is using IV or IM um, and getting an infusion if it's IV for two hours. Um, pediatric, again, dosing is the same uh, based on weight. And this, again, is usually used for that first stage Gambiense. Side effects, um, probably pretty benign overall. Um, some GI in the form of nausea, you can see an increase in serum creatinine. This drug is cleared by the kidneys, but it doesn't usually damage the kidneys. So long-term, um, that serum creatinine is going to come back down. Um, pregnancy unknown officially, lactation um, officially contraindicated. Not recommended. Again, pentamidine you can find um, in a lot of areas. This came out several years ago um, where you use nifertamox and the flornithine in combination. And so this is kind of a two-drug um, treatment regimen as what we're going to for a lot of different diseases, right, uh, due to resistance issues. And so um, nifertamox and the flornithine, you see they're given um, for 10 or 7 days respectively. There is a long-term, uh, what they call NECT, long-term, N-E-C-T, long. Um, and the only difference there is instead of getting a flornithine for just 7 days, they're getting a flornithine for 14 days. You do that in patients who after days three, four, five of a flornithine don't seem to be responding. You're going to prolong it out for 14 days and see if they respond better at that point in time. Um, this one, again, uh, we see for Gambiense, but for more likely second stage. And so this is patients who are more in the second stage and experiencing those sleeping or mood disorders that you can see with um, human African trypanosomiasis. Uh, pregnancy, officially not recommended. Uh, lactation, unknown. Um, guidelines, again, officially think that it's probably all right. And then suramen, or suramen, depending where you're at. This is called, this is called different things. Um, dosing, um, we give a test dose first. This one can cause, um, in some patients, potentially life-threatening reactions. And so we'll give a test dose first. Make sure the patient tolerates it well. Um, they only want to get 4 to 5 milligrams um, per kilogram slowly, which is about 25% of the normal dose. If they tolerate that well, and then the next day they're going to start the actual regimen of getting 20 mg per kg um, per day up to 1 gram. Uh, again, recommended for first stage. Um, side effects for most part, again, what we see for many um, drugs, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and potentially some headache. Um, this one can make patients tired is another thing to complain about, um, patients who have sleeping sickness tired. Uh, but again, usually this is used in first stage, um, probably before the, the sleeping has really started to play a role. Um, this drug, if you're trying to get it here in the United States, you can't just order it from your wholesaler. You actually have to get it from the CDC, and it's hit or miss around the world, uh, around the world, in Africa. Um, some locations you can find it pretty easily, in other parts of Africa not so much. And then finally, uh, Malarsoprol. Um, it's kind of fallen out of favor with the NECT. Um, once we got the, the, the NECT combination um, five to ten years ago, um, the usage of Malarsoprol has definitely dropped quite a bit. Um, now we usually use NECT over Malarsoprol for most of our patients. Um, but this one, again, primarily is used in that second stage patient, uh, so you can see it used sometimes for some of them. Um, you see here, this one actually requires a pretreatment with a corticosteroid. Um, so a lot of times methylprednisolone or whatever they have available is what they will give. Why? Well, the other reason why we don't like using this drug once NECT came along was the side effect of encephalopathy. Uh, and so that can cause a lot of problems um, for our patients. Um, that's pretty rare, um, but it's something that is, is not rare enough that you don't give a pretreatment. So you do usually use um, a corticosteroid pretreatment. Uh, availability, again, Africa is, is usually, this one actually is usually easily able to, usually able to find easily. There, I got it. Um, in parts of Africa where you're worried about HAT. In the United States, again, where we don't have much concern about HAT, uh, you can't just walk into not that you can get an IV medication from most pharmacies, but you can't just find in any hospital. It has to come from the CDC. All right, so what's the best way to prevent human African trypanosomiasis? Again, easier said than done, but that is, quote-unquote, best way to prevent it. 
Um, so here again, if you have questions, or you, especially here in the United States, if you have a patient who develops this disease, um, here's the information to call the CDC if you're trying to get medication, or you're just like, this is leash, and I'm in the middle of Kentucky trying to treat a patient with leash. We don't usually see that here in Louisville. I don't know how to do it. Call them. They're nice. They will help you. Um, so you have an email. You have a, a phone number during the day, and they even have an after-hours phone number. All right, so that is all I had. I'm probably getting close on time, but I'm happy to take questions. Um, if you have any, or you're welcome to come up afterwards. I can hang out with, up here for a little while to ask questions. So, so, first question, basically, how do you actually confirm the diagnosis, right, um, of the protozoa? And so, you can take blood samples, and or in the case of leishmaniasis, if they just have cutaneous, you can take a skin sample and send it off to a lab, and they can actually identify the protozoa. Um, if that is an option where you're at, um, and then back to the worms. Yeah, you get into you can get into problems, especially if you get worms in the brain, um, where you can you can kill them too quickly. As those worms are dying, they actually release neurotoxins, and that can make the seizures even worse. Um, from a GI area as well, you know, sometimes patients actually need to have surgery to remove the big mass of worms. Um, I was talking earlier today uh, about if you guys ever see Monsters Inside Me, the TV show. Um, watch the worm episode sometime. And so, um, so, so yes, you, you do have to be careful. I didn't really talk about that, but you do have to be careful sometimes with some patients and their worm infections about how, what you're, how you're quickly you're doing. Yes, sir? Uh, we often advise our team members after two weeks returning to take a short course of albendazole. That's still common. So, so the, the question, just to repeat, uh, if you're going on a short-term medical mission trip and you're in an area where there's a lot of worms, should you take uh, a treatment after you get back just to be safe? And so that is, you asked, is that a common recommendation? That is a very common recommendation. Is it the right recommendation? And this is where you get into, you have very strong opinions on this. And, and I get, I mean, I, so part of me understands, yeah, it makes sense, right? I, I want to prevent it. I was on a, one of my first trips. Um, they actually, rec- not for worms, but they told us, just take half, and this is back when fluoroquinolones were okay to use all the time, just take half of, of a levofloxacin tablet every other day to prevent any random infections. Like, okay, I did it. Um, was that the right thing? Looking back, no. Um, and so two different camps. One would say there's a good chance in some areas where that you did get a worm infection to go ahead and take an albendazole or benzol. It's safe, right? The patient is unlikely to have any side effects. Problems, again, in the other camp would say, well, that increases the risk of resistance, right? And so I, I hear that and I understand that, but I, I, I think it's probably less of a concern in that patient who's coming back to the United States than in when you have, and again, I understand this too. You have some governments in, in other countries where they encourage the kids once a month to be dewor- you know, take their worm medication, and so I get that, though, as well, right? I mean, that definitely is increasing resistance because those worms are from that environment and it can increase resistance. But those kids probably do have a worm infection that is inhibiting them um, in growth or in development somehow. And so I didn't really answer your question because there's, there's, I mean, there's not a good answer that's going to make everybody happy, I think, with that question. Um, and, it, you know, I think especially here in the United States, everything we've heard – um, the last probably 10 to 15 years now about antibiotic resistance, right? Um, and so the same thing can happen with, with the worm medications and with the antihelminics. And so I don't know. So the interesting thing I don't know the answer to is, is does the – I'm sure the CDC, World Health Organization, I'm sure they don't have any statements on that. But it would be interesting to have somebody like, you know, a big organization like that weigh in on that question just because – I get it, right? I mean, it's, yeah. So how's that for a long non-answer? Yes. <laughs> yeah, sort of along the same lines, I've worked in sub-Saharan Africa for about 20 years, and there's still a lot of schistosomiasis in the basement there. 
and especially people on short-term mission trips, um, everyone goes to Lake Monroe. Yep. Everyone goes to Lake Victoria. Yeah, yeah. The CDC came out. They joke is they went to Lake Malawi. They looked for schistosomiasis. They found it everywhere, and the lake was so beautiful. They just went swimming anyway. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to make a diagnosis a lot of times. We have been in the habit, and again, this is sort of unsubstantiated, of just giving everybody prosopontal as they do the country. Yeah. Because in, the, in Africa, that's going to cost about 25 cents. In the United States, by the time you get a diagnosis and treatment, that'll cost several thousand dollars. Having said that, the side effects were not insignificant when we gave it. Mm-hmm. So no one died, no one had surgery. But for the 12 hours or so after we took that, yeah, schistosomiasis, um, I, I think, is, is one of those other diseases I thought about putting in, but it's like almost too much, right? I mean, you can do a whole hour, I think. On, oh, you can do a whole hour in any of these. Um, and, and so, it, yeah, schistosomiasis, and do you get prosequantal, do you not? And you bring up a good point, back to the, the worm thing, of cost. Um, if that patient, you know, that return traveler does have a worm infection, it's going to take time to get that figured out. And, and of course... Yep. And then the medicine is going to cost. And albendazole and are not inexpensive here in the United States. You'd think they would be, but they're not. Yep, yep. Yep. So, yeah, I don't know what the right answer is. I mean, it's, it's one of those things, again, you can argue. That this, these are great debate topics, I think, you know, and it would be interesting to hear true experts debate those two things out because... Again, risks and benefits are definitely there. But I will let you, I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but I will happily answer your question. But if you guys need to run somewhere else, you're not at all offending me if you get up and go.